Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Dentists Who Invest podcast. This is podcast number four, if my memory does not deceive me. On the theme of finance, on the continued theme of finance, I've managed to procure a very special guest today. His name, his name is Vinay Rathod. You may or may not have heard of him. He runs financial services for us dentists based around the questions of insurance, mortgages, income protection, things of that nature. A lot of things that a lot of us by our own admission are not that clued up on. Vinay has experience in the dental industry because he was formerly a dental student. We'll delve into a little bit more of that later. That makes him uniquely placed to discuss with us dentists how we can optimize these financial instruments to get them to work better for us. And that's why I thought it would be really nice to have him on the show. So without further ado, here we go. Dr. Vinay. Oh, I beg your pardon. No, that, not, sorry. Not <laughs> force of habit. I beg your pardon. Force of that's habit. Right. Everyone else, is, is, we've, we've had yeah. dentists on previously, you see. Uh, no problem. Mr. We'll get we'll get the wife on one day. Then you, she's the doctor Rathod. Oh, then there'll be no steps at the top. Yeah, Fair yeah. enough. We have <laughs> Mister Vinay Rathod. How are you today, sir? Yeah, good, buddy. How are you doing? Smashing, tremendous, mate. I'm absolutely thrilled. It's beautiful, a beautiful Sunday afternoon, isn't it? Which has cheered me up. I've just been yeah. for a walk in the park, and I've had a cup of tea. We're all fired up on caffeine. We're ready awesome. to go. I think it's going to be a good one, my friend. Anyway, as I say, we've just given Vinay a little bit of an introduction. But I'm curious to hear a little bit more because that's what I know. And I'm sure there's a lot more to the story than that. Vinay, I just wanted to know about your journey into finance, your history as a dental student, which I've just touched upon a minute ago, and what led you to start VR Financial Solutions and just what is your journey so far? I'm just curious to hear. Right. Um, I mean, I started the business about 11 years ago, um, although... I had a, uh, a different name back then, Infinite Financial Solutions. The problem oh, is no one can bloody, no one can spell that word correctly. Um, I can have a go. So, infinite. Infinite. Yeah. I-N-F-I-N-I-T-E. That's right. But a lot of people spell it with an A-T-E at the end. So it was infinite. not a great name. Infinite. Yeah. Infinite. Because really? okay. I say it infinite uh, uh, purposely because of, the spelling at the end makes it more obvious but before <laughs> okay. people in in the uk people say infinite don't they and, oh, and infinite you, sounds possibly was, like a yeah I, it's, it would surprise you wouldn't it i would You'd be surprised would quite uh, okay fair enough maybe that's just me. But, I don't know. Uh, yeah so I, I i switched over to um just rebranded after a few yeah. years but um i i started that about 11 years ago um after i'd worked for a another mortgage broker, a couple of mortgage brokers for a while. After the recession, I set my own business up shortly after the recession. Um, because It wasn't the best time to set a business up, but it was an even worse time to be an employee at a business that relied on the finance, that was in the financial uh, sector. So um, I thought if I'm going to have a crappy job, I'd rather at least do it for myself and try and build something than to get have a crappy 
role working for someone else struggling through. So um, I set my own business up. It was a hell of a struggle at that time. Um, and, and so I had a, a bright idea of going back to university. I knew a few dentists had a few dental clients. Um, at, at that point, my company was mainly spe- uh, specializing with, in advice for doctors. Um, but um, the dental, I had a few dental clients and, and a couple of dentist friends. And I thought there's three things, medicine, dentistry and law that I wanted to consider Um Medicine, not at my age. I mean, I'm 37 now. Would have graduated a year and a half ago, um, and being a junior doctor in your late 30s, early 40s is is going to be physically destroying. So I thought, no, law is almost impossible to break into um, at such a late age. You know, I'd love to be a barrister, but it's difficult enough to get in uh, to that sector of law, even if. You've, you've done it at the right time. You know, you've been to a great private school and all of the other things. So anyway, dentistry was a great, great career option because it has a great salary, guaranteed starting salary at the end of it that's higher than any other graduate post. That have been, you know, late 30s. Uh, I wouldn't have had a long life of, of my career ahead of me. So I thought, you know, something that I can jump straight in after graduating rather than you know, starting on your 20 grand graduate wage and working your way up. But uh, I, I kept my business going in the evenings. So I was working on the in the evenings and between lectures and so forth because um, I'd, I'd met my now wife. She wasn't my wife then. And I, I didn't want to spend my savings, take loans out and rely on my partner to pay my way through. Yeah. So um, oh, we'll give that a second. Oh, yes. Sorry, I'm right next to a window. We are, the number of police cars that go past this bloody window, let me tell you, it's really strange. It's like, it seems disproportionate to any normal street. I don't know why. I, said, well, I am next to the hospital. I'm the police. Check out some of your, your neighbours. You might have a, a breaking bad setup next door. <laughs> that would explain it. That would answer a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get what I was saying. So, yeah, so I, I was... Um, just working um, around uni. But when you're 30 years old and you're a dental student, everyone asks you, what did you do before? And so I just tell them, you know, I'm still still doing it. I, I give financial advice to doctors and dentists. So bit by bit, it, people would remember. And it's, uh, when they needed something, they'd come to me and say, oh, you know, can you help me out doing this? And then as I did it, for more and more people, dentists, they would recommend me to more and more people. I, I suppose there was a bit of a novelty factor as well that this guy does, and he also um, studies dentistry. So, you know, uh, I, I, that's how I sort of gained um, my uh, 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 reputation um, uh, as such. It's just purely because people kept recommending me to other people. I, I wasn't really trying to gain any business um, as such because my priority was studying. Um, but after about two and a half years at dental school, I was at King's. Um, I I just got so busy and I, I really had to make a choice because at that point I'd have needed to be in clinic Monday to Friday, full days. Whereas the previous um, a couple of years, if anyone at King's knows all the lectures are lecture captured, you don't really have to go into uni very often because everything's recorded. So I was able to work in between. Mm. Um, and that's why I, I, I decided to um, stick with the finance route um, and um, sort of just try and develop and push that. Um, and that was, what, four years ago now, I think, probably. Um, since then, the RT, my wife, she's been a dentist for about 11 years now. But 
Um, I trained her up. She got a qualification. She's been with me for, I think, two and a half years now. Um, yes, she's been working with me. In VR finance. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, after I, I got her trained up and she got qualified, we, we uh, you know, she joined the business and um, she's doing fantastic. So um, for any dentist out there, my wife was a typical dentist who, who said things like, I don't understand finance, I don't understand numbers and so forth. Ironically, you know, you get those um, maths problems that people share on Facebook, the really complex ones that are supposed to trip you up. She'd always get them quicker than I would, but she'd always tell herself, oh, I can't do numbers, I can't. So she, it was more to do with the fact that she'd never tried. You know, it was just something different. She concentrated on dentistry all of her adult life and teenage life um, to get towards it. And, and, you know, she, she turned her hand to it and she's, she's doing fantastic herself. Um, and yeah. we're just, we're just growing the business, you know, it's, um, we've taken on um, a, a six months ago, we took on one member of admin staff after a year and a half search for someone um, getting staff for the, for the dental practice owners out there will probably be able to relate is, is probably the, the most frustrating thing, reliable staff, um, and we've we've got the second one starting in two weeks now. Um, so we've got Touchwood, a decent, a solid admin team in place, um, and and that's it. It's you know the business has just grown organically through word of mouth. We don't really advertise anywhere. Um, you know, I sponsor the odd friend of mine here or there if they're if they're doing an event that you know to offer support. But you know, it's more more for support than sponsorship, really. Um, and and yeah, and here we are. Brilliant. Wow. Two things. Spirit of mm. being an entrepreneur, because you managed to keep it going in your spare time. And another thing that I, I take home message for that or something I find interesting is the doors that open to you when you do things that you don't actually necessarily think are related. And then no. just by chance, these things grow out of completely unexpected avenues. That's why yeah, I love, exactly. Yeah. That's why I love to hear stories like that. And maybe that's something that's happened to me over the last few months a little bit to all the people I've met I've easily you know doubled the number of people that I, w- I was you know I always had good friends I always had I would say many close friends but now I've got even more and it's a wonderful thing and it's something that I just never would have thought that would have come about through all this so yeah it's another story along those lines I guess and I just think it's putting yourself out there really is a wonderful thing and all yeah. the great things can grow for it. And you've been fortunate in that you've benefited from that too, by the signs of it. So wonderful. Yeah. Great story. Yeah. It's always keeping your eyes open as well, because you, you, you never know when the right opportunity is going to come along. It's rarely from this, from the, from the place that you're expecting it to. So, so um, true. yeah. So true. Awesome. Well, we've both been beneficiaries of that in a sense. So good stuff. Good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Right, cool. Anyway, so we've heard a little bit about Vinay. We know a little bit about his business, a little bit about him, a little bit about where he came from. I wanted to, the main reason I wanted to get Vinay on this show was to flesh out mortgages and to flesh out insurance a little bit and then also to flesh out payment protection. I have to admit, I am, I'm the sort of person that if no one made me have car insurance, I wouldn't have car insurance. You know, one of those people, I just don't really, I would maybe just rather keep the capital and then pay for it myself and have a cushion in that sense. That's Mm. not to say I'm right. That's not to say anybody who has insurance is wrong. That's just me. And maybe that's by my own admission. I haven't really ever been directly sold the benefits of either having payment or income protection 
or have an insurance. And maybe there's a few things I'm missing on that front. And mortgages as well, that is something I know a little bit about. But I think a lot of dentists out there, maybe they're not as informed as they could be. And this is why, as I say, I just really wanted to get you slammed yeah. on the matter. So we're going to get on to the meat and potatoes now. We're going to talk a little bit about mortgages, if that's okay with you. From my knowledge of mortgages, I know mm-hmm. that there are interest-only mortgages and repayment mortgages. What is the difference? Because no one's ever explained it to me. Are those the only two types, first of all? Uh, yes, and the, the middle ground, which you can have a combination of the two to, to any ratio that you, you want. Um, uh, known as par and par mortgage, but yeah, um, it, it's one or the other. Um, uh, to simply answer the question, an interest-only mortgage, you never pay the capital down, you pay only the interest. So the theory being is the money that you're not paying in capital because the payment would be lower, you're doing something else with to then invest it um, elsewhere oh, to grow. You. So eventually the, the value of that will pay the mortgage off. I am, familiar, I am familiar with people who they, they get a mortgage and then they invest that mortgage in the stock market and then they use the ca- the difference, that, the capital that, generated. That's one method, off. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, some people, um, you know, may, may have a large um, amount of assets um, and be happy that, you know, they've got way more than they need for retirement. So part of that will be liquidated to clear the mortgage uh, when they retire. If I've just grasped that correctly then, Vinay, what you're saying is that people can borrow X, Y, and Z figure towards their house, 500 grand, 600 grand, whatever that is, and they only have to pay a proportion of the interest back every month rather than contributing towards that 600 grand. Is that correct? Yeah, on an interest-only mortgage, you don't pay any of the, the capital loan back. You only pay the interest on it per month, and that's it. To me, that's crazy because what you're relying on doing is taking that spare capital and investing it in something that is guaranteed to give you your money back. And the trouble with that is not everyone who does that will maybe not have the know-how to do it necessarily. Would you say that's true? The problem is it's not just the know-how, it's the motivation and time. Um, I don't encourage interest-only mortgages on on residential properties, buy to let's a different conversation. Um, but um, uh, on a on your home, and this is why it's quite difficult to get an interest-only mortgage on your home. Um, a lot of people fell foul of this in in years gone by when things were not regulated so um, carefully. And um, there was a time that you didn't need any qualification or authorization to sell mortgages. Um, you just needed a job that allowed you to that. that let you sell them and that's it. So there was very gung-ho methods there. Um, some of the older listeners may remember and know what an endowment is. The younger ones won't. So you, 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 won't, have heard, you won't hear of them now, but 20, about 30 years, 40 years ago, people used to go to a mortgage advisor at the bank and the, the guy at the bank would say, all right, you want to borrow, uh, you know, Dr. Martin, um, Doc Martin, you want to borrow... Um, you know, 200 grand on a capital repayment basis over 25 years. I'm making these figures up, by the way. They don't match up, I'm sure, mathematically. But that will cost you a £1,000 a month, for example. Yeah. And they'll say, but what we recommend you do is pay £300 a month, which is what the interest on it is, take an interest-only mortgage. And if you put that £700 a month into an endowment policy, then in 25 years, you'll get a lump sum, which will pay off your mortgage and 
you'll have a tax-free um, cash element of you know 50 grand. You'll end up 50, 100 grand better off with the way that the, the, the market's performing. Problem is that they used some very generous um, percentages on the, um, the projections and see, yeah. millions of people were then found later on. Uh, this was a scandal, the endowment mis-selling, mis-selling scandal, where people were then allowed to uh, claim compensation. They were getting, you know, they had three or four years left on their mortgage. They're, they're in their 60s and they were getting a letter saying that your endowment is going to be £75,000 short of paying your mortgage off. Oh my and these people didn't, didn't know what to do. Um, and that's why the government, uh, the FCA, made it really, really difficult to get an interest-only mortgage. Um, previously, again, when there were times where you could do something called a self-cert, where if you wanted a mortgage and you couldn't actually afford it or you didn't have the income evidence to show you could afford it, you just signed a piece of paper to say, I promise I can afford it, and they'd let you have however much you need. Oh but because you couldn't afford the payments, like, you know, if you wanted to take a mil- two million pound mortgage out, you can't afford the payments. So you might say, all right, well, I'll take an interest only mortgage. So you, you, were, you were getting people who were just scraping into houses they couldn't actually afford because they could afford to pay the interest on them. But then they got to later in life and they had not put the money away to, to pay that debt off because they didn't have it. It sounds like madness. Yeah, so that's why things are far, far more stringent now. And you, you need to have a large deposit to get an interest-only mortgage now. And um, uh, the, the loan-to-value, so the percentage of the property. So mm-hmm. when I say large deposit, I mean both in a percentage and in a, a monetary term. Yeah. Um, there's no point in having a 40% deposit if that only adds up to 70 grand. In, yeah. you know, because the, the principle being is the bank is assuming you cock up you don't pay anything into an investment, and in 25, 30 years' time, you're left with uh, exactly the same amount owing as you borrowed in the first place. But if you've put down a 400 grand deposit, the idea being that you can sell your house and you'll be able to buy something with that 400 grand. It might not be whatever, you, as big as you were living in at the time, but it's enough to buy a home to live out your retirement in. Yeah. So they're not leaving anyone who's in a, a position where they're going to be out on the streets. Yeah. Right. And and I personally don't encourage interest-only mortgages because you get some people who might have a lot of equity in their house, but the, the the fact is they still need to be disciplined enough. If you're saving, if you're paying a thousand pound less a month on your mortgage because you choose an interest-only option, you need to put that thousand pound somewhere in an investment, and that needs to be a good investment. If you make a bad investment, you know. Uh, 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 Let's say, uh, let's use cryptocurrency as an example. Yeah. Um, let's say they put it all into altcoins. Yeah. Please don't do that. Anyone is listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah but this is the thing is you have no control over what that person puts their money in. Um, I, I mean, look, you, you're all dentists. How many times have you read a post that a dentist has put up about dentistry and you think, did you just say what you just said? You're supposed to be a dentist and You've just said that. It happens in every profession. It doesn't matter what profession. Doctors, dentists, accountants, pilots, everyone will make a a comment that's just stupid. And you can't understand why they've thought that. And that's that's related to what they're doing for a living. How, How confident can you be? They'll never do something stupid. 
with their life investments. So now, if, if it's they're life unrelated to what they're doing, if they're not exactly. knowledgeable on, I get you. Yeah, because if their if their life investments was their retirement fund that would give them a around the world cruise, and they lose that, but they've still got their house, that's fine. They've got their house. They've retired. They've got a house that's paid for. They can take an equity release loan. Where this is a different type of mortgage, um, where if you're old and you don't need to leave money to anyone, or you don't want to leave money to anyone, or you, or you can't, you can pull down the equity in your house on the basis that the, the mortgage lender takes your house when you die, and they keep your house. That's it. You don't pay anything back on your mortgage. They give you a load of money, and they say, happy retirement. And when you die, whether that's in two years or 15 years, we'll take your house. And that's fine. You know, Worst case scenario, you've still got a house. You've been able to retire kids might be peeved because you're not leaving them any money because you've spent it all but you've not been out on the streets at the age of 70 yeah right but if you're in a, a position where the money that's supposed to have paid your house off is part of that life savings then you're stuffed yeah I hear you. you know there's always the, the the temptation that you can't quite get that commercial loan that you need to refurb your or set up your squat so what do you do? Oh, well, I've got 150, 200 grand in my ISAs. Let me use that. And then the business goes to pot. And then you've lost your, your, your savings for your, your mortgage. Your house isn't paid for anymore. Anything, you know. And, and that's why the banks have made it so difficult to get an interest-only mortgage. The FCA have, 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 um, have dictated this. And you need a lot of equity, a large deposit, so that if you do cock it all up, you, you're not out on the streets. The other thing is, Dentists are, 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 not, are not rich with time. It, it, dentistry, especially if you're doing it five days a week, is very demanding. Um, I, I've never practiced dentistry, but I'm married to someone who has. You know, Nin was a dentist five days a week for many years. Um, the amount of CPD that is needed, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, how tiring it can be. And then you've got, to, you've got to encourage yourself to spend hours every day learning about trading or investing you know you can't just and don't get me wrong there are dentists who are going to be listening to this who are you know phenomenally um uh, learned about investing um uh, a lot of them considerably more than me i'm sure and some of them probably will invest their money better than an ifa would be able to advise them but they're the minority you know the dentists who can invest as well as a professional are as rare as um, you know the, the the investment professionals who could understand medical terminology. You know, um, an investment banker on 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 Wall Street uh, could be the best investment banker in the world. Highly intelligent doesn't doesn't mean that if they decided they wanted to be a doctor or a dentist, they could do it. You can be really skilled in one area, but not be able to turn that to something else. And this is the thing about dentists, doctors is you've got to remember that this is a, a totally different type of, of, of um, thought process you've been used to. You, you know, it's, it's a considerably um, uh, more volatile thing. Uh, you know, things that are affected by things you have literally no control over and an, an immense volume of knowledge. You know, my two and a half years at dental school taught me how little I'll, I'll actually ever know about biology and medicine and so forth. And even doctors with five years uh, of, of a medical degree and years of specialist training are the first to admit that we only know this much that there is to know about medicine and anatomy and so forth. 
um, you, you guys are you're in a job that takes a lot of your time. So it's one thing investing your spare money after you've paid for your home and you've you've bought you know you've paid for all of your utilities and put a little bit aside in your your you know your rainy day fund. Then you've got money left. Worst thing that happens is if you lose that, you don't get to upgrade your car or go on holiday. You're not going to be out of your home. You're not going to be out on the streets when you're 60, 65. And that's the key. I mean, hearing you say that, it just sounds like an insane amount of liability to put yourself up for. The stakes are so high. There, there are people who do it successfully. Like yeah. I say, there are people out there who, who invest so smartly. Like I say, some people who will do far better than a professional will be able to, to advise them to do. Yeah. They are the few and far between. Most people want to invest their surplus money, not the money that they that should be paying for their home. And that's why I'm really reluctant to, to suggest that an interest-only mortgage is on the home is a good idea. Real quick, guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The Seven Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes that dentists make whenever it comes to their finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened. And that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistinvest.com forward slash podcast report. Or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. I think what I'm taking from that is, the key take-home message I'm taking from that is, if you're going to invest, please, please, please do it responsibly. And this is the idea of the ethos of the group. And I think hearing that, hearing, hearing you talk about that has made me, well, it just makes me think that that is a huge amount of liability to take on yourself on something that you're not necessarily that knowledgeable on. So quite right, as Vinay says, if you're going to invest some of your spare money, it's always a good idea to have maybe you know a certain portion in cash and the, the money that you have left over that is just superfluous, extra money, very great position to be in, Really, that's the only money that you're looking about. You're look, you're thinking about investing, and at that point, that's where education comes in. And really, there's no such thing as reading too many books on the matter. And if you're the sort of person who doesn't feel comfortable doing that, then maybe an IFA is better for you. Have I summed that up? In a yeah, fashion. Definitely. Uh, you know, if, if you if you feel like it's overwhelming, you know, there's nothing wrong with not investing and trading um you, well you can you can save and, and invest in things that are very low risk but then you can get advice from an ifa um and there's always that whole but you can do it yourself without paying but if you can't do it yourself as well yeah. you know it, 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 then no then there's no one who yeah. fits everyone and exactly we're, we want to be fair and balanced on this so that's great i'm glad to hear that We've got sidetracked a little bit. Yeah, we did. <laughs> that, Should we get back that, to the list of but questions? You know what? I'm going to keep that all in because I think that was really good to hear. We've got sidetracked a little bit. That more, that question began on the topic of mortgages and then we kind of meandered. But I think it's all very useful information. I'm going to keep that in. The original question was just to compare 
interest-only mortgages to repayment mortgages. So interest-only, you've given us an idea of what they are. It's where you don't pay off your the, the quantity of money that you've borrowed. You just pay the interest on it merely. And then at some point in the future, you're expected to pay that. Am I right in saying yes or no? Yes. Yeah, or no. yeah, of course. Yeah, why, you have to this pay is back. why it backfires. The other type is where you pay a little bit every month. You also pay a little bit of interest and you gradually chip away at that figure, whatever that might be. And then with time, as a bank close. 25 years, you'll have eventually paid it off. And these, from what you're saying, they're just generally better for most people. Yeah. Am I right to be honest with you, James, it, it's, it's rarely even a, um, an option for most people. Um, and for those that it might be an option for, it's rarely one of interest to yeah. people. So it's it forms such a small part of uh, of the percentage of the, of the 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 business we do. I mean, I hardly ever get asked about, or it's hardly ever suitable for someone to consider a residential mortgage on interest only. So it's, repayment it's would be the more logical element. thing to do. But if there's anybody out there who's listening who was meandering down that path of thinking about taking yeah. one of these mortgages, at least you've got a little bit more information to bolster your decision at this stage. Yeah. My second question about mortgages, fixed tracker variable, what should we do? It, it's it's There's no right answer. Because the problem is by the time <laughs> you know if it's right or, or not, it's... Yeah. Time has passed. Um, I mean, look, there are different um, opinions on this. Um, I, I'll tell you what. There was a there was a, a client who came to me actually. That um, they came to me for some insurance actually for some income protection, um, and they'd they'd been recommended a mortgage broker who's done some work with a couple of dentists before. And they said, oh, "I'm really sorry. You know, this person was recommended by a friend, so we've you know we've already discussed, and we're going to go ahead." Um, with the mortgage, what we'd like to, to get you to sort of the income protection. I said, yeah, let's have a look at what they've recommended in a mortgage. Now, this person had recommended a five-year fixed rate. So I said, can you tell me what the, the logic behind that was? And then I explained why I disagreed. Um, and their logic was, um, the, you know, the mortgage advisor said a five-year would be best because interest rates are really low at the moment. And I disagreed with that for two reasons. The Bank of England rates are at a record low. The banks are offering rates nowhere near as low as they could. And the reason for that is they're all so backlogged due to demand uh, and COVID interrupting the, the, the speed at which they can work. You know, they've got most people working from home, um, not being able to speak with colleagues to answer each other's questions, help them out and so forth. So things are really slow. The banks can't keep up. So that's why you can't get a 90% mortgage anymore at the moment, because banks, they're, they're trying to cull the volume of people who could apply for a mortgage. So it keeps the volumes down. What else they're doing, though, they're, they're applying loads of different methods. They're reducing the multiples they use on income. They're applying more stringent requirements for deposit sizes. Um, but they've also been putting up their interest rates. Because if you're the bank with the market-leading fixed rate, you're getting all of the business. And you don't want that because you're already too busy, right? So you put your rates up. And then the bank that was number two that was getting a few, yeah, enough business and now getting too much. So they get overwhelmed. They put their rates up and so on and so on. And then there's a race to not have the best and most competitive rates on the market. No wow. bank wants to win a bulk of the business at the moment. Wow. So... 
interest rates being offered to clients are not reflective as low as they could be. They're not reflecting the, the record lows in the Bank of England rate. So why would you want to tie yourself into something that at the moment is artificially high for five years when, when there's a vaccine and, and the world starts returning to normal, banks start getting back up to, tra- up to track with all their workloads, they'll start competing to get each other's business again and then the rates will drop. That's really interesting. So I believe. Secondly, Brexit is coming. Um, we, we're not out of the pandemic for quite some time still. You know, so there's the continuing uh, economical impact of, of the COVID. Um, when the furlough scheme ends, a lot of people who still have jobs will be made redundant, sadly. Um, the, all of these things, to me, suggest that the Bank of England rate will have to remain low for a long time. Because if the cost of everyone's largest single outgoing is the cost of their home, whether it's rent or mortgage payment. If you put interest rates up, mortgage rates go up even more and rents go up as a result of landlords paying higher mortgage rates. And if you own a house, your, your mortgage payment goes up. That, that, if you think of your average patient, don't think of your average colleague. Um, your average patient needs this month's pay for next month's bills, right? If their main bill starts going up, some people who are close to not being able to afford their outgoings will fall into... So you're saying this will strangle the economy effectively, and that's why you reckon it's going to stay... That's what they want to avoid. They need to keep the economy um, uh, 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 stimulated when they know there's going to be things coming that are going to cause some pretty bad problems, i.e. Brexit and and, um, the impact of, of COVID. So interest rates, in my opinion, the Bank of England rate is going to remain low for quite some time. And the banks, therefore, will soon be able to start offering more competitive rates when the pandemic is over. So I said to this chap, A, you can get a lower rate for two years than than the five you're getting. Because two-year rates are typically lower than the equivalent fives. I said, B, in two years, when the pandemic is behind us and the banks are all scrapping to win each other's business again you can get yourself another two three or five year fixed rate then which will be low or you can go for a five-year fixed rate now which is higher and it was a bit of a no-brainer after i i sort of talked him through the reason for this and and we we received his mortgage application last week um he decided to take our advice instead of the other person's um but this is it you know people have different opinions um I don't think the five-year fixed rate would have saved that person money. Broadly speaking, getting a little bit technical here, if you compare a two-year fixed rate to a five-year fixed rate, or for the maths to be correct, this is why it's broadly speaking, it would be a two and a half-year fixed rate versus a five-year fixed rate. This would be actually accurate on. But let's say there's a half a percent interest rate difference between a two-year fixed rate and a five-year fixed rate. You'd need to see an interest rate increase over the five years of double that difference. So over 1% for you to have broken even with the higher five-year fixed rate, yeah. assuming a linear rate of increase yeah. um, rates. So you need to save quite a lot of money. Um, or let me rephrase, you need to see quite a big jump in interest rates over that five years for you to have been better off with the five-year rate. And, and that's, we've already established that's probably not going to happen. In my in my opinion, I don't think it is viable. Well, I mean, 
from what I know about finance as well, I would definitely agree with you because at yes. the moment the economy is not going to, I actually think we're possibly yet to see the worst of the COVID fallout because these, go- oh, yeah. these, these government uh, paying your wages and things like that, that's not a magic money tree that can't last forever. Uh, well, it would stop. And, and like I say, that's when we're going to see redundancies because employers who are only keeping staff on because they've been paid through the furlough scheme. Yeah. I mean, people aren't horses. They're not going to sack people if the government are going to pay their wages instead. Yeah. But as soon as it starts falling back on them to pay the wages, if they don't have the business, then, you know, cafe um, owners and, and, you know, whatever, if, if their business has tanked, they can't keep paying staff. I mean, to have a look at the number of redundancies already in, in dental labs. You know, the demand isn't there. They're closing. They're making people redundant. And that's going to have a knock-on effect. Um, you know, that's just one of the many industries and sectors that's been massively affected. So you're right. We haven't seen the worst of the COVID uh, situation yet. And that's why I think, I mean, the Bank of England have even talked about going to negative base rate. Yeah. Whether, whether it happens or not, who knows, but they have spoken about it for the they first have, time. They have Europe, the European Central Bank, I think, has a negative, yeah. I think. Well, the Bank of England always maintained historically that they don't believe negative rates are suitable as a strategy for this country. But for the first time ever, they've acknowledged that they may be willing to consider it for this country. So, you know, that's that's my view on whether you should fix for long term or not. Um, I mean, I've just read, it, read my part of my mortgage um, that was due up about four months ago and I did a two year fixed rate for the same reason. Yeah. Interesting. Food for thought. Food for thought. When we're talking about loan to value ratios, when we're talking about your deposit versus it's how much money you can get towards a house, you can borrow towards a house. I actually learned something when you were speaking earlier because I thought the figure was still about ten percent, but you said that that's not so common at the minute. Not due to COVID. Um like I say they've Exactly that. The, the, the easiest thing to do is, is the, the, the largest volume of people have less deposits. Yeah. So let's increase the size of the deposit we need. And that massively culls. And, and people with 10% deposits tend to, um, uh, the, the applications historically tend to fail at a higher percentage than people with bigger deposits anyway. Because yep. banks will always apply some more stringent lending policy because they, they haven't got much security in the house. If they repossess your house with a 10% deposit and put it in auction, they're making a loss on it. They're not even getting the, the full value of the house there. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they cut the least appealing element of business, which had the largest volume of people applying. I hear you. What's your typical loan to value ratio at the minute then? Well, at the moment, the minimum is 15%. Now, is that by I'll, law? I'll make it by law or no, no, not law. This is just what the banks have decided. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, there was a bank last week that came out with a 10% option, but, you know, they only did it for a week. They said that that's what they'll do. They'll tell us, oh, for one week, we're, we're releasing a, a 90% product. You know, that bank might have caught up with all of its work and want to stimulate some, some more applications. Yeah, yeah. About a month ago, a bank did it for two days. And, and that's it, you know. Um, but as, uh, for the purpose of this, I think it's... I can't say to someone you can get a 90% mortgage now go and find a house because by the time they look for a house, the 90% mortgage won't be there anymore. You know? You. You. So 15% and the rates are not great at 15%. I always encourage people if they can 
just push their deposit to 20%. But this is the conversation I used to have with people a year ago when they used to come to me with a 10% deposit. And I used to say, try and push it to 15 if you can, because you can save a half a percent, three quarters of a percent on your interest rate. I'm glad you said that. That was the next question. Is there a sweet spot? Used to be 15%. It's currently around 20% and, and maybe even 25 where where the, the best rates are. After that, it's the law of diminishing returns. Uh, you know, you put more deposit down and you see marginal drops in rate. But it's it's getting away from being in that unappealing category. When I say unappealing, I mean to the bank, i.e. the smallest deposit. Yes, I guess very much the bank's market at the minute then. Yeah, it is. It is. They're, they're, they're dictating exactly what happens. Which doesn't necessarily benefit us by the signs of it. Yeah. And then the goalposts are changing regularly as well, which makes it more difficult because they're dealing with the developing problem. And so they're, what they're doing is developing as well. What do you think about buy-to-let mortgages and people who are getting themselves in loads of debt to get houses that they subsequently rent out to people? Just broadly, as a rule, I know that it probably comes down to the specifics rather more than a black and white answer. What's your general take on it? It was made more complicated um, a few years ago when they changed the tax laws. Um, so higher rate taxpayers, and we can assume that most people listening to this are going to be higher rate taxpayers, um, only get basic rate tax relief in the form of a credit on mortgage interest on buy-to-lets going forward. If uh, uh, an easy way to think about this, because some people don't quite understand how that applies it, it, to their situation is, most people understand that their dental indemnity is fully tax deductible, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bit like one day the HMRC saying you can only tax deduct half of your indemnity and the other half you, you can't tax deduct. Yep. So it's the same. The HMRC are now no longer in, no longer allowing higher rate taxpayers to fully deduct mortgage interest on a rental property. They're only allowing essentially for it to be half deducted. And that increases your income tax bill because you pay um, on any rental profit, you pay income tax at the same rate as your nominal rate of, of tax. So if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you'll pay a 40% tax. Now, if you're close to earning 100 grand and your rental profit pushes you over 100 grand, you'll pay 45% tax on some of that money. Not as lucrative as, as it used to be for, for um, higher rate taxpayers. Secondly, you pay an extra 3% stamp duty on any rental property now. The biggest, one thing I would like to highlight is people have put themselves in an inadvertently um, precarious position. In, a lot of people think, I'll buy a small flat start a place, first time buyer, I'll get something small and cheap, I'll live there for a year or two, and then I'll buy a big house afterwards when I've got some money in the bank and I'll keep the old place as a rental, which used to be the done thing if you could afford to do it, great idea. But you pay an extra 3% stamp duty on the next house you buy. So let's say you had a 200,000 pound flat and then you wanted to buy a million pound house with your, you know, your other half, you're both dentists, you've been in the career a few years now, you want to splash out. Well, you'll pay an extra £30,000 in stamp duty on your million-pound house because you, you want to keep your £200 cheap flat. So the, the, the most common way of people building up a rental portfolio was keeping the old house as you upgrade to the next one. It was the most natural way of doing it for people who could afford to do it. But 
because of the 3% stamp duty being chargeable on the house that you're buying next, which is usually climbing the ladder, more expensive properties, you're incurring quite a hefty tax bill, which means you, you've eaten a lot of your profit away before you've even started. What I'm going to say, <laughs> listening to you, Vinay, I'm going to say that it sounds like it's still possible, but it's a lot less accessible to your average Joe. So it's not that it's less accessible. It's just that the figures need to look that much better to make it worth your while. Ah, well, I suppose that's what I mean. So it's it's difficult for Joe Bloggs, who maybe doesn't know as much about houses as the next guy yeah. who's really into it. It's difficult for him to take a punt on a house that he maybe doesn't necessarily, you know, maybe housing is not his forte by any sorts yeah. of the other... imagination and actually have a profit at the end of the day. Exactly. And the, the other element being is um, when you, you're typically keeping your old house as you buy the next one and trying to build a rent, rental portfolio that way, you never thought about whether the place you're buying was a good rental prospect or not because you were, you were living there. Probably not. And you, you will then end up with a property that is not maximizing the rental potential on it because typically places that rent well with high rental yields and not the type of places you want to live in yourself so though you know naturally you'll end up with a bunch of properties in your portfolio that were never really fine-tuned for maximizing rental income and profit or capital growth they were just more about where you wanted to live harry Singh said the same thing on the podcast when he was on the other week he said right. uh, what was it he said uh, your your yield on the house, the houses that have the best yield are not always simultaneously the houses that you would necessarily want to live in. I, he no. had his logic. Uh, I can't remember exactly why. So I think well, the key thing is... It makes sense. The People... key thing is to go in and have a plan, I suppose. And yeah. also as well as that, maybe if you are going to do that, it's not as easy as it used to be. Educate yourself. No. I certainly wouldn't by any means... I'd be attempting to do that but i hold my hands up and i say i don't know anything about houses and i just hate for anybody who had a similar level of, level of knowledge to me to jump in and expect to make a quick buck because as vinay says it's not as straightforward as it used to be no the the other option just excuse me <laughs> you can buy a limited uh, let in a limited company um you can't buy it in your dental limited company. Let me make this clear because a lot of people think, oh, I operate as a limited company so I can use the money in my limited company to buy a property. You have to set up a specific limited company called an SPV, Special Purposes Vehicle. And then you can get a limited company buy to let. And then you get full tax relief because it's classed as a business, a limited company. So there's no issue of only getting partial tax relief on your mortgage interest. Stamp duty is still applicable you pay the extra three percent question i often get is can i move my buy to let into my into a limited company you can you effectively sell it to your own limited company but then the limited company would have to pay stamp duty again so you've already paid stamp duty once then you transfer it over and pay stamp duty in, in the long run yes you may well be better off the biggest problem most people have is they don't have that initial capital that they you know, if, you, if you're facing spending 40, 50 grand on stamp duty to move it into a limited company, you've got 40, 50 grand. Most landlords will probably think, well, I can just use that as a deposit on another house. And I'll buy that in my limited company instead. Got you. So, just a quick caveat to that. Am I right in saying that that stamp duty does not apply right now at present? 
the three percent surplus still applies it's only the baseline stamp duty that you don't pay anything up on the first half a million pounds so if you're buying a half million pound rental property you will pay 15 grand in stamp duty on it you won't pay any of the baseline stamp duty if you're buying a half million pound property to live in yourself then you won't pay any stamp duty if it's your primary main residence obviously if you're having buying a second residence you will little caveat for anybody who's listening. yeah you've done a magnificent job of fleshing out mortgages so far i'm learning loads i'm sure anybody who list, who's listening is learning loads as well these are some of the common pitfalls i wanted to know as well on top of that we spoke prior to this telephone call prior to this zoom call there are a few ways that you can optimize your mortgage based on the sheer fact that you're a dentist so ways you can optimize it which are unique yeah. to a dentist did i grasp that correctly Vinay? and if so what so, are the ways um, it's not unique to dentists it just happens to fit very well with the way dentistry is is structured financially um so there's something called an offset mortgage um an offset mortgage works well for self-employed people not necessarily for limited company directors um because you can't take the money out of the limited company um whereas if you're a sole trader all of the money is yours anyway so an offset mortgage, um, let's say you have a £100,000 mortgage chain. Mm-hmm. If you have a normal mortgage, you, you, you're paying interest on hundred grand if that's what you owe right now. If you have an offset mortgage, you have two separate accounts. You have a mortgage that you owe money on, and then they'll open you a savings account, which you will deposit money in, and they're, they're linked. You, they, they charge you interest on the difference on the balance between the two. So the more money you put in the offset account, the less money they're charging you interest on. So if you have a hundred grand mortgage and you have 15,000 in your offset account, they're charging you interest on 85,000 pounds. If you have 50,000 in your offset account, they're only charging you interest on 50,000 pounds. Now, you guys, if you're sole traders or partnerships have to save your tax money somewhere. And typically, you can't really do much with it. You need to pay a tax bill every six months. You can't tie it up anywhere. And you don't want to do anything with it that that risks the capital. Um, I've seen a couple of comments from people talking about putting their tax savings in in stock market and things like that. And I think that that's really, really preservation is the most important thing for your tax savings. And that's why people usually end up just plonking them in at best an online savings account or premium bonds or something like that, you know, that gets you crap or back. If you put it in the mortgage, though, they're not paying you any interest on your on your savings. So you don't pay tax. They're just saying, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a discount on the, the money you owe us instead. The taxman doesn't get any money on someone giving you a discount. So you're making a net saving of the equivalent rate of your mortgage on your tax savings. That is really useful. I'm sure a lot of people will find that really interesting. Yeah. So that applies to anybody who is a sole trader. If, well, yeah. yeah. They, now, they, offset they, mortgages pay their tax up front. Yeah. Well, any any self-employed dentist, basically, or self-employed person, um, and high earner, because the more you earn, the more surplus money you have. And until you've decided what to do with that surplus money, if you've got a good cash flow, you don't invest your money or tie it up the second it comes in. You'll let it accumulate and then you'll decide what to do with it. Offset mortgage is a perfect place to put that money in uh, whilst you're figuring out where to where to put it. If you're saving up for a holiday, 
put it in the offset account if you're you know you're saving up for building work or if you borrowed money for building work on your property you don't give 100 grand to your builder all in one go you'll never see them again so if you're borrowing money you can take an offset mortgage and if the bank are giving you 100 grand you put that 100 grand in the offset mortgage so you're not paying any interest on it until you actually start pulling it out to pay the builder and, and there are numerous different things that you know that as a, a you know to, to to maximize it and and what you do is typically if you tell the bank the, the, when you take an offset mortgage the bank will ask you how do you want the savings applied to your account so the more you offset the more you save do you want us to reduce your monthly payment month by month based on how much you've offset but then the mortgage term remains the same if you've got a 25 year mortgage it will be paid off in 25 years or do you want us to keep the payment the same and reduce the term which is what I recommend to people. So whatever your payment is, doesn't matter how much you offset, they never reduce the monthly payment. But what they do is any money you save, they essentially put on the back end of your mortgage payment. So you're paying your mortgage off quicker. Right. If I've grasped this correctly, you can almost get an interest-free, you know, sum of money that you obviously have to repay back. If you well, I've got, I've, got, I've got a dentist who is uh, pretty much 100% offset. He owns a practice and he feels that there's no one that would give him an interest-free business overdraft facility for a couple of hundred grand, which, which serves him perfectly. He's, he's got a few hundred thousand in an offset savings account that he can literally access at a moment's notice and he doesn't pay a fee for that borrowing facility like he would with a large overdraft or something of that kind. Yeah, actually did some money out, but it's yeah. a very minimal amount of interest. Exactly. Maybe not minimal, but it's it's less than what it would be. Well, it's a mortgage interest rate, so it's minimal compared to other borrowing facilities typically, yeah. That is incredible. I think a lot of people listening will find that very useful. Thanks for that. I had no clue that something like that existed. Definitely really good. Brilliant. Well, we've done mortgages to death. I hope everybody's still listening. <laughs> I was hoping Probably to ask. fast asleep by now. <laughs> I, I actually found it a lot more. I mean, I, mortgages, I mean, isn't that your kind of cliched discussion topic that puts people to sleep? I don't really know. I mean, I would have imagined it's one of them, but I have to say, I'm... I'm so it's not the most thrilling of things to talk about, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> I actually find a lot of that super interesting, but there you go. I never thought I'd say that about mortgages, but here we are. Brilliant. We've done those to death. I was hoping to ask as well a little bit about income protection because I know that that's your your dual forte, income protection mortgages. You've got other things. You do many various things, of course. But income protection is something that I have to say... It's asked about a lot. Pardon, sorry? It gets asked about a lot. So, yeah, it is one of the things that people want to know about. And what time would it be more super relevant? I could We all could have done with some income protection when COVID hit. I don't even know if we quite could have claimed it then. No, it wouldn't. Ah, oh, wouldn't we? Right, never mind. That, that's professional expenses cover, which um, a lot of practice principles had. It's totally different. Um, I'll let you finish, and then I'll explain what the differences are and why it wouldn't have covered. Brilliant. All I was going to ask was, what's your philosophy on it? Would you generally advise it or do you advise against it in the instance of most people? What would be the pros and cons of it? I I think every dentist should have it. And then there'll be some people listening to that thinking, well, of course you would, mate. You make money if a dentist takes it. 
maybe be people listening, but there'll certainly be many dentists out there that can vouch for the fact that I've often talked them out of taking policies. Other people have said that they should have um, when they come to me for a second opinion. If it's not necessary, if it's excessive, I'm the first person to tell someone, do you really need that policy? Are you going a bit over the top? But income protection is something I think is really important. I tend to give the same advice to my clients. Or no, I don't tend to. I do give the same advice to my clients as I would give my wife, my family members, and take myself. Um, if, if it's not good enough for me and my family, why would I, I give that advice to clients? So that, that's point one, because it, it's, it, it's, you know, someone who sells income protection, do you think we should have it? Well, of course, they're going to say that. At the end of the day, it's what I do for a living. I'm never going to say to someone, I don't want to set up financial products for you. Um, in fact, I have actually once or twice when someone has asked me to do something that was not um, legal or correct, whatever. But um, income protection, let me, let me think, go a different way around. One of the biggest arguments against income protection that I hear is, um, or two of them, two of the comments I often see are, I'll put the money in a property instead. So this follows on nicely from the buy-to-let conversation a moment ago. Or save your money, put it in a, um, a savings account. Um, cost of income protection varies. Young associate starting on a you know, 40, 50 grand salary, it's maybe 35 to 45 pound a month. But based on age and amount of income, there are people paying hundreds of pounds a month for seven, eight, nine grand a month of cover. Um, and they're in their 40s or 50s, you know, they pay a lot more. Let's say 50 to 100 pound a month is pretty typical for most young associates for income protection, right? Um, that, that's, that's, if we say 750 a year, for argument's sake, take a, a, a sort of median figure there. Um, what's that going to get you after five years? 750 a year times five, plus some compounded growth on that, right? That, that's going to be four, five, six grand if you've, if you've been phenomenal with your money, you know, uh, and that's a month or two months worth of your, your income. And... That, that is assuming you've not needed it for years. You know, even if you don't need it for 10, 15 years, that's still only two or three, three or four months worth of your income that you've saved. What kind of a property are you going to, uh, what kind of property wealth or, uh, or equity are you going to build with 50, 100 pound a month for the next five, 10 years? It's not going to be enough to get you a deposit on a decent property. Maybe after 10 years, you might get enough for a deposit on a cheap rental, all right? None of these will replace your income. The assumption that people always have is that I'll retire without ever needing to have used my income protection. So then they look at, well, I'm 30. I'm going to retire when I'm 60. That's 30 years multiplied by 12 months times however many months of payments or whatever the payment they've been quoted. I could be putting 50 grand into something else. But that's under the assumption that nothing has ever happened to them and that they never use the income protection policy. Now, if someone said to me, Vin, I've got a DeLorean, I'm going to go back in time and I've just retired and I've never needed my income protection, shall I go back and tell myself not to take it? Yeah, great. You know you're not going to need it. It's all very well now saying, and you always get these 55, 60-year-old dentists on the Facebook threads 
I've not had income protection. I put it all in this instead, and I, and, and it served me well. And and I've not wasted. I would have wasted tens of thousands of pounds. Great, but you're you're already older, and you're saying that historically. There's no way of knowing going forward what's going to happen. So, for fifty, hundred pound a month, which I don't think many dentists would have to sacrifice much or anything else to be able to pay usually comes out of your surplus. And if you can't afford 50, pounds a month and you're a dentist earning an average dentist wage, there are probably other factors in the background that contribute to you not being able to afford it. There's, there's something else that's not going to plan all right in the background. Otherwise, if you're earning 60, 70 grand upwards, how can you not afford a 50, pounds a month premium from your surplus, from, from your disposable income? So, you're never going to be able to buy anything or do anything less because you've paid income protection. You're never going to look at your bank account and think, oh, crap, I've, I've, I've got zero in there. I would have had £100 if I hadn't paid dentist provident this month. You're always going to have enough to do what you want and buy what you want within reason. Yeah. If you don't have income protection, though, and you're ill and you can't work, I can pretty much guarantee that most people listening to this wouldn't have enough to be able to be okay after a certain period of time. And there was a lot of people that, that came back to us after COVID and uh, uh, the, the lockdown, not because they were necessarily scared, but a lot of people who thought that their savings would be enough to get them by in the event of a long, uh, mid, short-term, mid-term illness. But the lockdown showed them that after two months of not working, they were skinned. Their savings were gone. It didn't go as far as they thought it would. And so they said, actually, what this lockdown has done, I'm not scared of getting coronavirus, but what it's made me realize is I'm scared of something happening to me, like, you know, my back goes or I break my hand and I'm off for six, 12 months. I, I wouldn't be able to last. It's rocked my world a little bit. I think it's rocked a lot of people's world. And that's why I thought it would be a good question. Mm. Income protection. No, there is. Income protection just to clarify, pays for anything that stops you work, not being able, uh, stops you being able to work as a dentist, assuming you take own occupation cover, which is all we, we would offer. Um, but if you, if you don't have anything pre-existing, so with an income protection plan, they take your full medical history when you apply. If they're not going to cover you for something, they'll tell you before they start the plan. James, you've, you've had a um, back pain on and off for the last five years. So if you want cover, we'll give you it, but we won't cover you back. Do you still want the policy? So you're never going to end up with a policy that 10, 20 years down the line, you get a nasty shot, as long as you set it up correctly, of course. That was one of my questions about it as well, I have to say, because I understand that there are maybe less scrupulous insurers out there in certain industries who will I wouldn't say... attempt to catch you out. Now, I'm completely upfront when I say that that could be completely misinformed. And that's why I thought it was a good question. But you're, what you're saying is that typically isn't an issue. No, I, I don't think there are unscrupulous insurers out there. There are unscrupulous advisors out there or less than competent advisors out there that may recommend a product that might be perfectly suited for someone else, but to a dentist. So a, a couple of examples of things I've seen, um, own occupation cover, is the most obvious thing. Most of you guys will know this because Wesley and drill it into your skull at dental school. You need own occupation cover. 
um, if you can't work as a clinical dentist, then you are going to be qualified. Uh, quali you are going to qualify to be paid under the income protection plan. There are policies out there that are classed as suited occupation cover, or any occupation cover, or um, working tasks definitions. I'll explain those three in order. Um, suited occupation. James, you ring me up. I'm the insurance company, and you say I've, I've screwed my back up. I can't do dentistry. Um, I need some time off. And I, and I say, oh, but James, you've got a dental degree. Um, you can do many suited occupations with your dental degree. You could teach, lecture. You know, you could sell dental products. You could work as a dental practice manager uh, behind a desk. That wouldn't cause you back problems. So you can do a suited occupation. So I'm sorry, you don't qualify to be paid. Any occupation cover is the same, but there is no suited to you requirement they can say you can do it you can do a job you can stack shelves you can sit in a call center answering the phone you can do a, you can do something so you don't qualify for a payout and then working tasks is the worst where every insurer has a different but a short list of tasks five six seven tasks things like bathing yourself climbing the stairs um, unassisted um, walking for a certain distance without stopping or with, without assistance. And you need to not be able to do a certain number of them. They might say you, you need to meet four of our six working task definitions in order to make a claim. And pretty much means you need to be in, uh, uh, disabled fully, properly disabled, i.e. you can't really do anything at all. Uh, we would only recommend a plan that's own occupation. So... The kind of companies that you might refer to as unscrupulous there, it's not their fault because if an advisor has set up a plan with them, then it's the advisor's fault for not giving the correct advice. You shouldn't set up a plan like that for a dentist. And the people that do are the ones who don't work with medical professionals or dentists. They're a generic broker and they don't know these things are important for the dental sector. So they pick the cheapest one off the, the screen and they don't pick the one that covers dentistry correctly. So, oh, the other thing. Sorry, buddy, you were gonna. No, well, I was. I was just agreeing. I just find that interesting. <laughs> hmm. The other, the other reason for um, the single biggest reason for claims being denied is non-disclosure of medical information, i.e., clients not disclosing the medical correctly. And there's 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 two ways that can happen. Either the client lies or forgets something which doesn't happen very much with medics and uh, doctors and dentists you know it's it's language that you guys speak most people forget things because they don't understand it when the doctor tells them so that's less an issue with dentists um and and dentists are not going to lie knowingly as often as general members of the public would one would like to believe but um the other situation is I've had a couple of worryingly clients tell me that the advisor who sold them the plan only took them through a basic medical questionnaire with five or six questions. Oh, have you been in a hospital? Or do you take any medication? That's what I do at the beginning of a call with a client to vet them. If someone tells me they're diabetic. I, I want to tell them sooner that you can't have income protection. I want to take two hours of their time up and then say, oh, crap, you're diabetic, you can't have it. If the premium is going to be doubled because someone's um, BMI is high, 
I don't want to quote them 50 quid and then afterwards say, ah, it's 100. I want to tell them it will be 100 for you. Other advisors, um, sorry, if you want to go ahead with the plan, we go through a full detailed medical questionnaire. We ask every single question the insurer wants answered. And if a client ums and ahs and says, I'm not sure, I say, well, let's tell them and let them decide if they need to know it or not. That way you will never, ever be faced with a, sorry, you didn't tell us about this if you try and make a claim. Other advisors, though, from what I've been told, and I would expect this to be a very, very rare thing because it is just not the correct way of doing it, um, we'll just assume if someone says they're not on any medication, they've never been hospitalized, they've not needed any scans, that they can just answer no to all the questions on the client's behalf. The client gets a copy of the medical questionnaire in the post from the insurer with a letter saying, please read this over and if there's anything wrong, let us know. And that's a 20 page document no one ever reads. They just file it because they assume that the person they've gone to for advice has done the job correctly. Why wouldn't they? You know, um, so it's, it's really important to be extremely honest. Um, you know, I'll, I'll wait for clients to get in touch with the GP and get a response on dates and things like that. If a client's unsure, um, we, we provide extra information to underwriters when we think it's necessary. Because, and, and then we'll save these emails in with the client's file. So that in 20 years' time, if, God forbid, anything does happen in the event of a claim, we, we've got everything recorded, you know? Bit of a misconception on my behalf then, but I, I don't think I would be alone on that. So the the fault in the no, you no. the fault in the circuit, the fault in the system is more prominently the middleman, effectively, rather linking these two parties together. I didn't know that. Yeah. Or, or dentists taking the cover out themselves and not setting it up correctly, and then. You know, they'll tell their colleagues, oh, I've paid tens of thousands of pounds and I didn't even get a payout. No one's ever going to say I cocked it up. I did it wrong. And then they said no. Um, they're, they're, you know, that, that's that's something that happens. So um, different insurers have different types of plans. So Dentist Provident, for example, Royal London, LV, they all have um, limited benefit period plans. Um Again, I've had this where we've lost business to another broker and the clients got in touch with us, found a cheaper quote than you get me. And it's like for like. And um, the maximum payout on the plan that they've been advised is two years. Whereas the plan I set up is to retirement age, 65, 68, whatever. So a two-year payout of two or three grand a month versus a 37-year payout for two, three, four grand a month, whatever, you know, um, th there's a reason it's cheaper. But quite often, when you do a quote, if you go directly to the insurer, the insurer won't give you advice. It's a non-advice service you get if you take a policy directly from an insurance company. They can answer questions for you. Um, so if you, uh, they can provide you with choices. So if you say, should I have a, a day one policy or a three month deferred plan? They, they won't be able to tell you, answer that question. They will be able to say to you, well, sir, these are the options available to you and this is what would, would happen in the event of a claim. Which one do you want? So all these boxes you've got to tick when you're choosing the policy. If you set it up incorrectly, you accidentally tick the wrong box, then you might not realize for 10, 15 years that the um, plan you've took out wasn't correct for you. Complex and nuanced. 
likely best to get some help if you're going to do something like that by the signs of it? Well, this is what I tell people. I mean, look, get advice. I don't. It doesn't have to be me. I'd love it. For, I'd love for it to be me, of course, um, because I know I'll do it properly for you. Um, but you know, get proper advice um, because worst case scenario is if it is cocked up, you've got someone to sue. There's someone's indemnity insurance that would be there to to cover you if the policy was advised incorrectly. If you set it up yourself, there's literally no one. And the premium you pay if you set it up through an advisor shouldn't be any any different to getting that exact same plan if you could directly to the insurer. So you're not paying any extra money for the advice that you get. You, you, you're getting the same outcome, except you've got, if you don't value the advice, if nothing else, if you do want to set it up yourself and you dictate, I want this policy set up like this, but you go through an advisor who agrees that that's correct for you, you will be protected by the fact that that advisor has advised that plan to you. The other thing that I wanted to highlight is um, critical illness cover is something less spoken about, um, but it's still quite important. A lot of people take it. So critical illness cover pays a lump sum if you're diagnosed with a critical illness. Which critical illnesses depend on the insurer? Different insurers offer less and more comprehensive policies. But the bit I want to talk about is a lot of people know that you should have own occupation for income protection. Not many people know that there's an occupation-specific element of critical illness cover. So they often set it up with the wrong company for that reason. They didn't realize that it was a consideration. Um, you get a, an additional uh, feature with critical illness cover called total and permanent disability cover, which means if you're permanently disabled from working, even if it's not a critical illness, you'll get a payout. And that can be either own occupation or not. And if it's not own occupation, the same situation applies as income protection. They'll say, oh, you can do other jobs so you don't get a payout. Whereas, let's say, for example, you were doing some gardening, James, and you, you, know, you were shredding some branches in your, with the machine and you, your hand went in and your hand got chopped off. And that, you're never going to work as a dentist again, but that's not critical illness. But your critical illness payout would pay as a lump sum in that event because you'll never work as a dentist again. That's if it was a known occupation policy. Your income protection would, of course, cover that as well. But um, the critical illness, which is dentists typically, like I say, Wesley and make sure of this, dentists know that they should have own occupation income protection cover. Hardly any of them know that they should also have own occupations specified on their critical illness plan. And it's only a very small number of insurers that do critical illness with own occupation cover for dentistry. Vitality used to do it and they stopped doing it a year ago. So it's, it's just anyone who has a vitality plan already, if you set it up over a year ago, they haven't stopped the own occupation cover on your live plan new plan sorry because i last time i said this on a webcast uh, a podcast i got about a dozen messages from people who had vitality plans from five years ago um yeah that's something really important to um to keep in mind if you're going to have critical illness cover you need to make sure it's got the right definition of cover for, for dentistry there are things you, almost unique to dentists or specific to dentists that we can do to take advantage of cert, of these certain financial instruments that we've just spoke of in addition to that, I just wanted to know, apart from mortgages and apart from 
income protection, as we've just said, is there anything else that VR, Vinay Rathod, financial uh, advisor, can help us with financial solutions? We don't give any pension and investment advice um, uh, here. I'm, I'm not an IFA, so I don't give any advice in that respect. Um, if anyone needs a, a recommendation, I can pass them, uh, put, put them in the right direction. But with us, mortgages, remortgages, so both residential and buy to let, buy to let, be it uh, through a limited company as well. Um, uh, the commercial loans, um, we can help with um, the insurance requirements for any commercial premises. So if you take a commercial loan, you'll need life insurance with most banks. Some of them want income protection. Critical illness cover is another one. Life insurance, of course. Trust planning. So if you have life cover, um, you can avoid your family paying inheritance tax on it legally. Um, we include that for free for anyone who takes cover out through us. Um, uh, well, I'm trying to think what else. Um, practice insurance, uh, so overheads cover, um, you know, your, your public liability. Um, we do not do indemnity insurance. It's probably the, the only dental-specific uh, plan policy I can think of that we don't really engage in, or we don't at all engage in. So indemnity, we don't. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty pretty much it for the time being. Um, I am setting up um, another venture um, which will be coming to market in the next few weeks, um, which is commercial utility um, services. So for dental practice owners who have um, their gas, electric, um, so forth, their, their debit card, credit card terminals. So we'll be offering a uh, switching facility for that. I've partnered up with a guy who's been in the industry for 15 years. Um, he knows everything that there is to know about it. And um, sort of hoping that we can offer uh, 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 the, the same sort of um, peace of mind. It's, it's a service that most the dental practices need. They need to sign up gas electric, but they get cold calls from salespeople all day. Some of them might be good, some of them might not be. And um, this way, hopefully the peace of mind that it's someone that is already known in the dental sector for, for providing a, a reputable service can save them money on those areas as well. Nice one, Sons of interest. No problem, Vinay. Well, I just want to say, we're gonna wrap up now. I just wanna say thank you so much. You've been no problem. generous with your time. I mean, I've learned tons about mortgages, lots of things that I'd never really come across before. The information that you give us, I'm sure, will be of interest to many people who are listening and on the income protection as well. Definitely, I was someone who sat in the skeptic side of the fence towards that particular topic. No, I'm a little yeah. bit more in the middle and it might be something that I consider in future. Like I say, Vinay, thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks for coming on. No the worries. Thanks for having me, buddy. Um, I've enjoyed it. Hopefully, the people who do watch... Um, We'll, we'll pick something up of interest. Um, you know, people are welcome to, to get in touch with me and ask any questions. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the type of person who will only answer questions for a customer. You know, I, I spread the knowledge in the hope that, that eventually people will see the value in it and will want to come back to us. But we don't ever do anything on the, um, on the basis that we expect it. So if anyone needs to run anything past me, they can drop me a quick Facebook message or whatever, and I'm, I'm always happy to, to chit chat. No problem, especially pertinent for us dentists, because I think that I'm probably correct in saying there is a lack 
of those specifically knowledgeable in the dental field, specifically knowledge in the finances of dentist field. So as I say, if anybody was interested, Vinay's on the group, feel free to drop him a message. As I've said before, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, buddy. Anytime, mate. Anytime, my friend. I'll let you get off now. You've been more than generous with your time. Vinay told me off camera I've enjoyed it. that his wife has got a roast in the oven. I would hate to think. I would lose <laughs> if I thought I was keeping him back from that. So I'm going to let you crack on, Vinay. Good to see you. Take care, buddy. Speak soon. Nice to see you. Take care. Speak soon. In a bit. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.